Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the first chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. For many of you, your Bibles will be falling open to that section as you've been memorizing it. And so I'm going to read some of it today under the pressure of knowing that you know all the words. And so our our text this morning is actually just going to be the end of verse 16, but I think again we will start back in verse 13 and read to the end of verse 17. Listen to the words of Paul as he is moved by the Holy Spirit. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we go to the word of God this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, and we thank you that you have given it to us in human language, that it has been translated into our language, that we might read it and understand it. And we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate its truth so that we can know it for sure. And so again this morning, I pray that you will speak to us through your word. I pray you will give me freedom. I pray that you will loosen my tongue and that you will... Bring your word and power this morning through the Spirit, and I pray your Spirit will teach us in your name. Amen. Well, it's easy as a Christian to often be very brave when we're together and not so brave when we're apart. Right? We get together and we, and we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and we say everything that we want. And then as soon as we get out in public and we get where people are not believers we start to pull up on what the things that we say. And so we're free to wear, you know, um, our, our, our tie that says Jesus loves you when we go to church, but we certainly wouldn't wear that to work. We read our Bibles publicly even at church, but we certainly don't rub, read them on the subway because, on the sub, subway, yeah, that's right. I, I could just, I thought that sandwich, I'm sorry. <laughs> So, we did eat last night, right? So we get out in public, and, and we, often, we often start to hide who we are, and, we're, and we're, we don't really want to share the gospel because people get upset. People don't like being told that they're responsible to a, to a God, a holy God who demands certain things from them, obedience. They don't like to re- be called a sinner, And so there's a tendency for us to be ashamed of the gospel. 
There's a tendency for us to want to hide that gospel, and certainly the church has gone that way as it has taken the gospel and dumbed it down and tried to take the offense out of it, but it's an offensive gospel. And so Paul will, in this section, really give us reasons why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. And he will lay out reasons why, instead of far from being ashamed of it, we should be proud of it. We should recognize it for what it is, and we should proclaim it. Now, I want to remind you where we're going in the book of Romans. And we remember that Romans is really a book really centered on the gospel itself. In fact, it is the greatest treaty ever written on the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is and what it affects on you, read the book of Romans. Paul wrote a magnificent book, and we would say because Paul, Paul was hindered from going to the Romans, this was God's way of bringing the most magnificent treaty on the gospel ever written. So Paul is writing this book to the book, to this church in Rome on his third missionary journey around 56 AD. And again, he introduces that theme of the gospel right away. He is set apart for the gospel of God. Now, as he begins through these first seven verses or so, he he lays out reasons why we should actually read the book of Romans. And we discussed how when you... They wrote their books not in books like we do, but they had scrolls. And as you would open the scroll, you would notice right away who wrote the letter. We, we put love you at the end, right? Lo, lo, love Johnny at the end of the letter. But they would put it right at the front so you knew who you were, was writing it to. This is, you need to read this. And so Paul says, I'm writing this book. And I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've been set apart for the gospel of God. You need to listen to this because I have a divine message and I'm a divine messenger that God has sent for you. And he says, now it also, you need to read this book because it's about the gospel. It centers on the Lord Jesus Christ. It was given to us. It was promised beforehand. And it centered on Him. And so he says, you need to listen to this book and you need to read this book. I wrote it. It's about the gospel concerning his son. And thirdly, he says, it's because of the audience. It's not just for the roving audience. It's for all believers of all time. And then he lays out in verses 8 to 15, another thanksgiving and prayer section. And he says here and that he now lays forth for us the components, as it were, for being together, the commitments that we need to make together, that we need to enjoy one another, that we need to keep the, the gospel central, that we mean, need to be committed to the spiritual growth of one another, that we must accept all believers regardless of who they are, that we are to pray for one another, be thankful for one another. And so even as he lays out the background of writing this letter, he demonstrates his heart. But now as he comes to verses 16 and 17, he really lays down the thesis for this book. And we could really say that the rest of Romans is actually a book that that continues on this theme and expands it in a great measure. In fact, I think even this morning as we we read those scriptures, those scriptures are going to be the back of your mind as we go through verses 16 and 17. And you will see that there's an expansion of what he says through the rest of this book. So this is the heart of the gospel. This is the theme of this book. 
Now, as he started this thesis, he maybe started with what would be a, a surprising statement. For I am not ashamed. For I am not ashamed. And in that, Paul recognizes that, number one, that the gospel is a shameful message. In fact, we went through that last week. To the natural man, the gospel is shameful. And in fact, we looked at, at the culture of his time and we saw that the, culturally, this, this message couldn't have been more offensive in, at any time in history than it was then. You had a gospel that centered around, quote, God in flesh, which was inconceivable. Not, but not only was God in flesh, but he died the most gruesome and the most lowly, humiliating death that you could on the cross. A death that was meant to humiliate. A death, uh, a death that was meant to degrade that person. And for the Jews, how could God die? And how could he be associated with the curse of the cross? And for the Romans, you didn't even talk about crucifixion. How on earth could you put a message of salvation wrapped in such ugliness? And so Paul recognizes there's a tendency for us to think that the gospel is shameful and for us to want to hide the gospel, for us to not want to, to proclaim that gospel. Well, Paul, after giving that introduction then, starts to give us reasons why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of it, and here's why. Here's why I'm not ashamed of it. And first of all, he says, it because it's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And we, that was the first reason we saw last week, or two weeks ago. And he, Paul said the power of, of the gospel is not in the letters or words of the gospel, but rather it is in the power that comes through the Holy Spirit. In fact, he said in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, my gospel came not in words only, but what? In the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing, there's nothing magical about the words themselves outside of the Holy Spirit taking those truths and implanting them in your heart and revealing them to you. And so he says, this is what the gospel does. It comes along and it's used by God and it's used powerfully, but it's used in two ways. It's used, number one, to save those who are his, those that he has called, his elect. When they hear the gospel, they hear the voice of the shepherd and they come. But the gospel is also the power of God. And he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that he will harden hearts with it. And so that we must recognize the purpose of the gospel and we must not be ashamed of it and we must not hold it back because we often there are those who would say to you, Stop giving them the gospel. You're just hardening them. Stop giving them the gospel. You're just making it worse. You're, 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 you're giving them the gospel and you're offending them. You're giving them the gospel and they, they are becoming resistant to it. Stop giving the gospel because you're just making it worse. Exactly right. That's exactly God's intent. And God will use the gospel as he chooses and it's not up for you to decide whether you give the gospel or not. Yours is simply to give the gospel and God will give the increase how he chooses. Every time you present the gospel, it's God's power at work. Let it out. Let it out. Let God use it as he chooses. That's not your concern. 
Secondly, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because it produces salvation. Notice what Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. In other words, the gospel rescues. It is a rescue mission where he rescues sinners. He rescues those who cannot save themselves, those who are in need, those who are spiritually drowning, those who are spiritually dead, those who cannot save themselves, and he produces spiritual life in them. And when we share the gospel, God very well, very well may be in that message calling sinners to himself so that they respond and experience spiritual rescue. They're rescued from sin. They're rescued from death. They're rescued from God's wrath. And the gospel message that God produces, uses to produce salvation. That's why we share the gospel because it's the message of God that can accomplish rescue of sinners. And it saves us from alienation to fellowship, from wrath to the love of God, from moral pollution to holiness, from eternal death to eternal life. It is a rescue. It's a rescue from what we were to what God now gives us. Well, today we will look at two more reasons not to be ashamed of the gospel. Two more reasons why we should always put forth the gospel and not be ashamed. The, first, the third reason that he really gives in this passage is the gospel requires no human effort or merit. The gospel requires no effort or merit. We should not be ashamed of the gospel of God because it's the power of God. It produces salvation. And third reason is not to be ashamed of it, it's because it requires no human work or effort. Again, look at verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel produces spiritual rescue for everyone who what? Believes. Now, the power of God unto salvation is applied through faith. In other words, without, God, without faith, God will neither justify nor save any man because it is his appointed means to bring people into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is absolutely necessary for God to apply salvation. Now, this is unique to Christianity. And Paul will contrast works and faith all through this book. And we read some of that this morning. But we must recognize just how unique it is that Christianity says that salvation comes through faith and not works. If you were to look around at the, the religions that we see here even in our society, you would see immediately there's a difference. Now, you have certain individuals who came, come dressed very much like I am this morning, and they come to your door, and they bang on their door, and they give you a little pamphlet. Why do they do that? Because for them, they recognize that they get points every time they share, share with you. Every time they give you a pamphlet, they get credit with God. And they are working their way to heaven 
Now, unfortunately for them, they have already found out that the the 144,000 is already filled. But they're still working their way to make it to heaven. And so they come to your door because they want to merit salvation. They are working for it. You think of the Mormons. What is their philosophy? We work. We do works. We do everything that we can to please God. And God is gracious enough to accept what? Our works. In other words, work righteousness. We can work our way to God. We can be good enough. You look at the Roman Catholic Church. The means of grace. You're baptized into the church, but you better stay there by the means of grace. You better take the Eucharist. You better, you better take communion so that you can re-sacrifice the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's up to you to keep it. And so by your good works, you what? Stay saved. Look at Islam. How do you get to, how do you get to paradise? Those who are faithful and do what? Good works. That's how you get there. Do you see a theme? It goes on and on and on. Every other religion says that you can be good enough for God. You can work your way to heaven. You can do it yourself. In fact, that was the problem with the Jews in Romans chapter 10. Paul writes, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the what? The righteousness of God. And there was a massive miscalculation here. They thought that God's righteousness wasn't that great. They thought their righteousness was much greater than it was. And therefore, they thought they did not need the righteousness that came in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they simply rejected the Messiah and what Christ had done on the cross because they thought they could do it themselves. They thought they could keep the law and therefore be pleasing to God. Now, Paul is making a critical point here. And everywhere... He goes and as he writes, he makes a contrast between faith and believing on one hand and works on the other hand. And he's saying the gospel comes not to those who work for it, not to those who think they can earn it, but rather simply to those who believe. And it's a massive difference. Look at me, if you would, at Romans chapter 3 we read this morning. He says in verse 20, if you just flip over the page, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This was the Jews' problem. And he says, guess what? You can't do it by works. You can't do it by doing good things, by keeping the law. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Again, it comes by what? Not by works, not by keeping the law, but by faith. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul begins to show that the message 
of justification by faith, this, this um, gospel that he is sharing here, has its roots in the Old Testament. He chooses Abraham in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. It was through his, if it was through his own efforts he achieved a right standing, then he can boast. If Abraham had done by works, been saved by works, he could boast. But Paul recoils from that and says, not before God. That couldn't happen. So he says it can't be true. In verse 3, he then says, for what does the scripture say? And now he quotes that famous quote from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. His righteousness came what? Because Abraham believed God and God credited it to him. Now watch the contrast that comes here in verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. We all know that when we go to work and we, we put in our time, when our boss pays us, he's not doing us a favor. We don't say, oh, th- thank you so much for doing me such a great favor, right? We have a certain expectation that if we have worked there, we have put in the labor, that this is just desserts for what we have done. We deserve it. So on the other side, there's human work, and, and then there's, there's effort. But now the contrast in verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but to but believes in him. You see the contrast? On one side, there's human effort, and you get what you deserve. You've earned it. On the other side, there's an absence of human effort. That is believing. So you understand then that faith is the absence of all human effort. It's not a human work. It does not merit anything with God. It does not achieve anything with God. Now notice this. He says, but to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. And I would suggest to you that all who work for God's righteousness, instead of accepting Christ's righteousness, are actually achieving from themselves a wage. But far from pleasing God, as they work to get their own righteousness, they are actually achieving or getting what is going to be due them, which is God's wrath. And every one of those good works that they are doing is not pleasing to God, but rather is something that incurs His wrath. And so we say, well, they're such good people. Look at them. Look at them doing all of those wonderful things. Doesn't God appreciate that? No, He does not. They are not done for His glory. They are not done for under His Lordship. And He sees them as an affront to His righteousness, and He will judge them. And they will get the just reward of their works. Paul makes this point between faith and works in other places. Look at the rest of verse 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So you see the contrast. Another passage that makes that contrast is Galatians chapter 2. 
Paul goes out of his way to say the very same thing in three different ways. Knowing that man is not justified, he says, by the works of the law, but by keeping the law by his own efforts, but through faith in Jesus Christ. There's the first time, not by works, but by faith. Faith is the opposite of working. Even as we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. That's the second time, same point, the contrast between human effort, human merit, and faith. And just in case you didn't get it, he repeats it a third time, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul's trying to make a point here. You cannot work for your salvation. You cannot be justified by your works. And so Paul wants us to understand when he says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is for everyone who believes. He means to say the gospel comes without work, without human effort, without human merit. In fact, if our merit is as Isaiah 64.6 says, our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. Everything that you do before God is like filthy rags. Now you'll notice back in Romans chapter 1, in verse 16, the word believes. The word believes. And we could say that this word believes, this verb here, and the Greek noun for faith are really the same word. They are, they are, the, they are synonyms. They are speaking of the same concept, the same idea. Now you'll notice as you look at that little word, whoever believes, he doesn't say whoever believed. You notice that? He doesn't say whoever will believe. He says whoever believes. It's a present tense. And he's basically saying, you could translate it this way, the one, the one who is believing present tense. The one who continually is believing. This is an ongoing process. This is a continuing volitional choice of the believer. Now we know it's enabled by God, but it is a continual stance of the believer. And Paul is making a point here that faith is not a one-time event. And that's very important. We have a whole theology out there that says all you have to do is believe once. If you just give some sort of assent and an understanding of, of the gospel, then you can just live any way you want. And we have so many people who base their salvation upon an event. I was saved when I went to camp when I was 10 years old. I signed the back of a Bible. I raised my hand. I said a prayer. And now they just live like they want, like any way they want. There's no change of life at all. They just continue on as they are. And they say, well, but I am once saved, always saved. Right? I don't have to worry about that because I, I got that done. Now, I don't necessarily even believe that anymore because, you know, it's a little fishy to me. But I, I did believe it then. And so I, if I'm in, I'm saved. Well, Paul says that's not the case. 
Paul says, actually, it's an ongoing believing. It's a constant reality in the, in the, in the believer's life. So here's the problem, and, and this is really the question that we need to ask, and this is what we need to understand, and we're going to go through this, is what exactly does it mean to believe then? Because if we get this wrong, we don't get salvation. If you get believing and faith wrong, then you don't get salvation. And so it's crucial that we understand that. Faith in a dictionary meaning is just trusting or relying on. But there are elements to faith that we must understand. There are elements to it that we must examine and know in order for us to get believing right. To get an overarching understanding of what faith is. And the New Testament reveals to us really several elements to faith that we must understand. The first element is this. True, genuine believing must start with a mental and intellectual apprehension of the facts concerning the gospel. In other words, you have, there's a minimum content of the gospel that you must understand. There's a, there's a knowledge component to faith, in other words. This is the foundation of true faith. Faith is not, it's just not something that you just kind of believe and hope in something. It's not just this feeling that goes out there, not this hope. You can't believe whatever you want. You can't say, well, that's good for you, but my faith is in something else, and I believe something different. The gospel actually has a content that must be understood. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, he tells us, um, I'm just going to flip over there. Beginning in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. The gospel is the word of faith. And then he says, here's the message in verse 9. That if we confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and here's our word, and believe in your heart. Right? That there's knowledge, okay, there's knowledge that you have to exercise faith. You must believe in your heart this, that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. There's a content there. He doesn't say just believe whatever you want. You must believe what, that he has been raised from the dead. Now resurrection here is a shorthand for everything that Christ accomplished here on his life, on earth. His perfect life lived, his death, his resurrection, his suffering. All of those things are part of that. And this is what we must be careful of when we read scripture. It's that we get all of the gospel. We do no one any favor if we give them a truncated gospel, a gospel that is not full and with all of the facts. Right? You hear verses like Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's all you got to do, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Yep. But we must remember that the Lord Jesus stands for something. And the Lord Jesus Christ, each one of his names describe all of his character, all of his work, all of what he has done. 
He is Lord. He must be worshipped. He must be bowed to. He's Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one who came to pay the price for sin. Jesus, for he shall save his what? People from his sin, their sin. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, when we went through 1 Corinthians 15, he says, let me tell you the gospel I preach. It's that Christ, verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. In other words, Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died. He died physically, completely. He was buried. He wasn't a fake death. He didn't swoon. He was completely dead. The wages of sin is what? Death. He died a real death. And that he was raised on the third day. He raised up, was raised. God accepted his sacrifice. He took it and he appeared to many. In fact, over 40 days, he appeared to many to, test, to testify to his resurrection. That's the gospel. So here, Paul says, you must believe that God raised him from the dead. You must believe that he has died on the cross and paid the price for sin. But you have to believe the facts. You have to believe all of the facts. You have to have a mental comprehension of all the facts. You cannot take part of the gospel and believe it. Because you have to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is and you have to know what he has accomplished and you have to know what he has done. That's why Paul says in, in chapter 10, verse 14, How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not what? Heard. Heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And that's the point. You must give them all of the gospel. Stop trying to, to give the gospel to people in 30 seconds. Stop trying to get people to make decisions. That's God's point. Give them all of the truth. Give them all of the gospel and let the Word of God and the Holy Spirit do the work. And so true saving faith must start with a mental and intellectual comprehension of the facts. You must have all of the facts. Don't leave them out. Don't, don't try to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, in a, faith, in, in a Lord Jesus Christ that's not represented in Scripture. The second element is a, uh, of saving faith is a firm conviction which produces full acknowledgement of God's revelation of the truth. In other words, you need assent. In other words, you need to be convinced that the knowledge you have gained from Scripture about Jesus Christ and His work is factually true. It's one thing to, to hear the facts. It's one thing to look at the facts. But now you have to actually accept them as true. You can't just say, well, yeah, I, I, I recognize it. But now you have to say, actually, I agree with it. I, I see that and I know it to be true. I may not like what it says about me. I might not like what is taking place. But I must recognize that it is factually true. <clears throat> He says in verse 16 of chapter 10, 
However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? They heard the message. They understood the words. They understood what was being said. They just didn't agree with it. They didn't, they, they didn't like it. They didn't embrace it. They had knowledge, but they did not have assent. And really, we could say this is, as James says in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. In other words, the demons have good theology. They understand all of the facts, right? They know everything. Probably their theology might be better than many of us. But they what? They don't assent. Right? They don't embrace. Thirdly, the third element to faith is trust or a personal surrender to the truth. Knowledge, assent, and trust. That's the heart of faith. And you see this in verse 9. Paul says here, in the essence of the message of faith which we are preaching, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we constantly thank God that you received the word of God which you heard from us. And that word of God is the gospel. You accepted it not as the word of men for what it really is, the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. There was a full trust in it. A full acknowledgement of its truth. They now transferred their eternity onto the Lord Jesus Christ. Their reliance for pardon, their reliance for righteousness, their, their reliance for being out from under the wrath of God now was dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the faith ultimately does not lead you to a set of doctrines, but to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the righteousness, and they abandon all other means of righteousness before God and right standing before God. And so they bank everything in life, everything for eternity on Him and on Him for salvation alone. And I would add one more element. And that is a conduct inspired by, that is consistent with one's trust. In other words, it's not, it's not just a belief. It's not just a sent to the facts. It's not just relying on Him for your salvation. But it will be, have life-transforming results in your life. And there, it will produce in your life fruit. Saving faith comes alone. Is, salvation is by faith alone, but saving faith is not alone. It comes, as Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which He prefer, prepared beforehand so that we should what? walk in them. In other words, it's life transforming and we will continue to have a conduct that is consistent with what we say we believe. Now, we also must understand what saving faith isn't, and it's certainly not a natural faith, because we all exercise faith every day. In fact, this morning you got up, and you got a drink of water, and you trusted that that water was good to drink, right? You got in the car, you trusted that it would start, because you didn't go out there early. You went out right on time. 
You trusted that the wheels would stay on, right? You didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you know, oh, maybe you did, I don't know, but most of us didn't. Hang on to that steering wheel white-knuckled, right? Maybe the people in the passenger seat did, but you didn't, right? Because you trusted that the car would run and that the tires would stay on. You fly on airplanes, right now you're sitting on a pew. How many of you came in and, are, and just like, yeah, I think it will hold, right? You just plunk down, right? Because what? You trust it. And we live by faith all the time. But true saving faith is actually a supernatural gift from God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith and not not of yourselves. It is what? A gift of God. Now it's here can either refer to faith alone or it refers to the whole packages of salvation and that's what I think it, it includes here. Either way, faith is what? A gift from God. It's a gift. The reason you believed is because God gave you the capacity to believe. In other words, He regenerates you. He gives you a new nature and the natural response of the new nature is to what? Come in faith and repentance. You are free to choose according to your nature and when He gave you a new nature, you came. And that's why faith is a gift of God. In fact, Paul says this over, Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.1. He says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as yours, as ours. To those who have received by faith, received a faith of the same kind as ours. In other words, he says, you have been granted, and the word here is by lot. God gave it to you. As if by, turning, by, by shaking lots. He's the one who controls the dice. He gave it to you by lot. He says, Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him's sake. In other words, you, it has been granted, the word here is related to grace. It's a grace gift to you to what? To believe in him. So the faith that you exercise is ultimately a gift from God to you. There's no merit. You don't earn anything from it. God gave you that capacity and therefore you are simply using the capacity that he has given to you. A capacity that you could not generate on your own. You cannot come in faith through your flesh. Faith does not earn anything. It simply is exercised as a result of God, a given capacity. Now there's a, a danger sometimes when we think about faith because we often think then that our acceptance before God is based upon our faith. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, there's a temptation to think that when we doubt our salvation, that we go back and we think, well, maybe when I had believed, maybe I didn't believe hard enough. Maybe I, maybe I didn't have enough faith. And we kind of think, well, God's up in, in heaven and he's got these big giant scales and he's sitting there and he's put your faith on there and he's got sufficient faith on this side to save and your faith on this side. And he's looking at the scales and seeing, okay, which one? Oh, not quite enough. And we think that uh, we, uh, the exercise of our faith is the strength of our faith that actually saves us. But that's to misunderstand it. 
you are saved by faith that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the and the and ultimately, your righteousness comes not from your faith, but from what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished. And so it is not the strength of your faith as much as it is what your faith is in, and it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, your righteousness comes from Him. So our faith in Christ is not our righteousness. Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. Remember, Scripture always speaks of faith as the channel or instrument through which we receive salvation. It says we are saved by faith or through faith, but it is the righteousness of Christ that, that is credited to us that actually saves us. So faith is merely our empty hand outstretched to receive the free gift of God's righteousness in Christ. Faith is that channel, it is that instrument to save us. Paul says the gospel is something I'm not ashamed of because it is for everyone who believes. In other words, it requires no human effort or merit. It is simply exercised because it is a gift of God. You might be here today and you might be weighed down by guilt, by sin, a sense of foreboding even, that one day you will die and stand before a holy God and that there's no hope for you. The good news is you don't have to do anything. You don't have to work. You don't have to earn. You don't have to be good enough for God. You simply have to what? Believe. Recognizing if you believe, it's because he has enabled you to believe. And so this morning, simply call. Believe. Believe. Call on him. Ask him to give you the grace and the ability to believe. No wonder Paul wasn't ashamed. It was God's way through faith that sinners might be saved. So we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because number one, it's God's power. Number two, it produces salvation. Number three, it requires no human merit. And number four, it's the universal message for every person. This is the fourth reason that he gives. He says in verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek now you notice one, he said to everyone who believes, and that's all without exception, but you might think it's only to those believes, and maybe there's a special group of, of those who believe. But he says to, to expand it, and, and, he, and he says in the verse, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Now it's interesting, there are two categories of people that we've already met in this first chapter. Paul says the ben that can benefit from the gospel. If we remember back in Romans chapter 1, verse 14, he divides all Gentiles and non-Jewish people into two categories. We saw that we talked about them being Greeks and barbarians. Do you remember that? We noted that the, those were, the, the, the Greeks were sophisticated and cultured and, and the barbarians were unsophisticated and uncultured. He divided the Gentiles in verse 14 into the wise and the foolish, those who are the intellectual elite, 
those who are educated, and he contrasted them with the uneducated and untrained and unlearned. And Paul says it's for all of them, for all the Gentiles, is his point. Now in verse 16, Paul tells us that the entire world is the target of the gospel. Notice he divides the entire world into two categories, Jews and Greeks. And here he is simply saying dividing between Jew and Gentile. So here Greek, Greek means everyone who's not Jewish. He says in verse 16, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Now, Paul, you'll notice that first, that little word first, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Now that's a remarkable statement because remember he's writing to a church that is primarily Gentile. So why does Paul say to the Jew first and to the Gentile and then also to the Gentile? Well, first of all, I think it means it in two senses. First of all, he means the promise was made especially to the Jews because they were God's chosen people. You remember back in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. It repeats that all the way through in Genesis chapter 15, 17, and verse 22. But back in Genesis 17, 17, he says this, 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout all the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. In other words, God had set out that he would be their God early on through Moses and his descendants. In Exodus chapter 19, he called the whole nation before him at Sinai and said, you are going to be my witness nation. I'm setting you apart to be a high priest, to, to be a light to the nations. It was first coming to Abraham and his descendants that the gospel would come to all men. It was going to be through them the world would be blessed. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4.22, for salvation is what? From the Jews. In other words, you worship who you don't know, but guess what? Salvation is through the Jews. God is coming first through the Jews to the nations. And who are the Gentiles now in the New Testament? Well, according to Romans 11, they are the wild branch grafted into the olive tree, which is the Jewish people. He said in Romans 11:17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and became a partaker of them, of the rich root of the olive tree. So Paul says the gospel came to the Jews first. It came to the Gentiles only after it came to to the Jews because they were God's chosen people and only now have we been grafted in. But I think there's another means in that, and that's simply in chrono- chronologically the gospel came to the Jews first. We remember even as Moses wrote the Old Testament in Genesis 3.15, he said the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The, the first signs of the gospel and God's rescue came in the Old Testament. The gospel was preached to the Jews first during, during Christ's ministry. Matthew 10:5. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go 
in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost house of Israel. The gospel started with Christ coming to his own. He came to preach the gospel to his own. Jesus said to the Gentile woman, I was sent to what? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They had priority. They heard the gospel first in time. Jesus said in Luke 24, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from what? Jerusalem. So Jesus' ministry focused on the Jewish people. He ministered to Gentiles, of course, as well, but his primary goal was what? To the nation of Israel. He came to them first. Even the Apostle Paul as he was a missionary, an apostle to the Gentiles, said in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, he's speaking to Jewish people here, since you repudiated and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are what? Turning to the Gentiles. In other words, the gospel came to you first. It came to you in priority. It came to you first in time. You, you were the first ones to hear it. But don't miss the point Paul is making here. The Jews, first, as to the Greeks, he's including everyone. He says it came to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles, but guess what? It's for everyone. The gospel was never intended to stay with the Jews, but to go on. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 9.6. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. Speaking of the Messiah, that's too little. You're bigger than that. My plan's bigger than that. And he says, I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach what? The ends of the earth. The gospel is for all. It is God's universal call to all. That's the heart of God. He wasn't just saving a tiny people, a little ethnic group of Israel. His plan was to, to have the gospel go out to all nations, to all people everywhere. In fact, if you look at Romans 1.13, he says, I want to obtain fruit among you also, even as among the, what, the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation to both Jews and, and bar Greek and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. The gospel's to go forth. It was to go to all people. There's one gospel for Jews. There's not one gospel for the Jews and another for Gentiles. All will be saved through this gospel. All people everywhere are brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as it was true of the first Jew, then for the Gentiles, so then it is true. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel does not discriminate. It doesn't discriminate by who you are. It doesn't discriminate by your ethnic group. It doesn't discriminate by how much education you have. It doesn't discriminate by how much wealth you have. It doesn't discriminate by how bad you are. For some of us, we think, we look at that and we say, well, is the gospel for gross sinners? Absolutely. Look at Paul, right? He hated Christians. He killed Christians. How, 
Not too many of us can say that we've even killed anyone, let alone gone out of our way to kill God's people. But the gospel is the hope for all. It goes to all men, no matter what our background, no matter how bad we've been, no matter what sins we have committed. In fact, the more that we are, the sins we have committed, the more that we are saved from and we are saved to. The only, the gospel is for all people of all time. You may think this morning that you're beyond the grace of God. You may think that this is, I've been too bad in my life. I've done too many things that God will not forgive me for. And Paul says, actually, this gospel's for you. It's for all people everywhere. Right? In fact, Paul said he didn't save very many mighty, not very many wise. He actually saves the foolish things of the world. The common things of the world. And he says, this gospel message is for you. There's not one gospel for Jews, another for Gentiles. There's no other way of salvation. This is it. There's not many ways to salvation. It's through the belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. All, Rome, all roads don't lead to Rome spiritually. There's only one way through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you have become. There's nothing that you have done that's beyond the reach of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever what calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible ends in Revelation with an invitation. Whoever is spiritually thirsty, whoever is spiritually thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And this morning, Paul calls out and the Lord Jesus Christ calls out. His word calls out. I call out and say to you, whoever is spiritually thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Today, you can know the blessings of being his. Come today, believe, ask him to give you faith. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. And we thank you for the gospel, a gospel that preaches your sovereignty, a gospel that is received through faith, a gospel that is your universal plan for all men everywhere. And we pray this morning that if there's anyone under the hearing of your word who has not believed, that you would grant them eyes to see, give them ears to hear, and they might for the first time turn in belief to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might know his glory, they might know his righteousness, that they might worship him and they might have the joy of fellowship with you forever, I pray. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.